In space, no one can hear you stream. I feel like I've made that joke before. In honor of Warner Brothers going to the max, what 2021 movie are you hoping does not go streaming? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I've been thinking of In the Heights as like the, whew, we made it through the pandemic movie I'll go see in theaters and dance in the aisles uh, since back when I thought it was going to open in June. Uh, how naive I was. So anyway, that's the one that I'm saving for theaters. I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Tom Cruise's big revival, Top Gun Maverick, because if I have to eat a shoe, I better get to see a movie in the movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, and I'm going to go with Uncharted, because if I'm going to see Uncharted on my home TV, I should just play an Uncharted. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich, and I don't want to watch any of these movies at home. Uh, Let's see. I mean, Top, uh, Top Gun, Top Gun Seven, pa- Mission Impossible Seven is not going to be next year, right? Yeah, it is. Really, they're they're, they're making it. Yeah, it's next supposed fall. to come out in November. Yeah, uh, it'll the be, idea I of watching a new that one. the idea of watching a new Mission Impossible movie at home after the last couple of them is just like so absurd to me that yeah, of course I will be uh, praying we can see that in theaters by the time it's ready. Good call. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's 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 awesome. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 328. It is pandemic 39 and it is the week of Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. That's the day that in 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas premiered. That's nice. You know what I like about the Charlie Brown TV movies that all the adults talk like this dance. No, all the adults talk like this. Mac, mank, 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 Netflix actually paid to have them dubbed the same name. <laughs> the uh, same name. That's promo, unfortunately. I'm creating a viral video right now. The Netflix Twitter account has truly caught a severe case of mank fever and is uh, retweeting things along the lines of hashtag mank America great again, but not quite oh, not quite that far. I think that's still a uh, Eric Allen Hatch joint, but they're in the same territory of just like retweeting, wow. retweeting shit that is vaguely can be made to sound like mank. <laughs> and you know what? If I were in the position, then it's exactly what I would be doing. It's exactly what I'm doing now. And no one's even paying me for it. So it's weird that they leaned into happy Thanksgiving when it wasn't actually out yet. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a bad choice. Well, it was, uh, it all right. Well, we'll, we'll get to mank. Uh, but first, David, I hear we have one review. We do uh, from tiddlywinks239 who says, hola. That's Spanish for hello. Five stars. I came to Fighting in the War Room seeking a break from politics. So naturally, the first episodes I listened to were on the election. But they were great. Hmm. Hashtag mank. And so cathartic. Hashtag mank. Looking forward to hearing movie talk. No hashtag mank. Love the pod. Also, Katie Rich forever. Yeah. Forever's a long time. Never never getting rid of me. (laughs) Uh, You've tried. Katie's husband could commit. We can all commit. That's right. <laughs> That's great. I have not. I have been with him longer than this podcast has been on, but not that much longer. Is that can, true? can we re- can hmm. we yeah. reveal yeah, the late breaking news about Katie H- Rich's husband? Well, I'll let's just leave that nugget in the podcast oh, so uh, people can Please. wonder on their own. Uh, everyone Rich's husband everyone came, should know it is not as interesting. He came onto the zoom. Came onto the zoom right before we started recording and dropped a bombshell. 
uh, and the adaptation <laughs> will bomb definitely a bath bombshell. Yeah, these are the things uh, that happen when you anyway, don't leave your house anymore. Thank you to the lyrics two three nine. If you would like to be as uh, momentous a figure as them, please go on iTunes, leave us a review on iTunes. It's fighting in the war room. We'll read it on the show. We'll give you another tidbit about the hair situation, the Katie Rich household. <laughs> you don't want to miss it. Um, well, we had planned to talk about HBO Max as we recorded this, and then moments before we sat down to do this podcast, uh, Christopher Nolan came out throwing hot fire about <laughs> HBO Max. Does anyone? Know? And he called it the worst streaming service, which is both like not that clever but very funny. Uh, he said uh, that he said that the filmmakers who were in bed with Warner Brothers, who thought that they were working, they thought they went to bed thinking that they were working at the best movie studio. And woke up to find that they were working at the worst streaming service. Damn. <laughs> uh, it's satisfying not only because you know they just spend a ton of money to put Tenet in theaters to not that much success, but also Christopher Nolan is just usually not the person you expect to like get out there and dis and, yeah. like throw dis- dis- bombs. Christopher Nolan in full Bane mode. The fire <laughs> rises. <laughs> um. So I don't know. Christopher Nolan's not into it. Uh, it seems like from a couple of different reports, there's a lot of agents like really causing a ruckus to the point that like it occurred to me tonight, like, will they actually go through with this plan to, to be clear, release their movies day and date um, on HBO Max and in theaters all of next year, like including Dune, which is supposed to open in like. Well, um, like Legendary is November. Su- is thinking about suing them, apparently. I mean, there's yeah, lots and- of lawsuits that might prevent Dune or Godzilla versus King Kong. God <laughs> there forbid. There are going to be some very busy services. lawyers over the next uh, few months as they unpack all these deals. Listen, we're still waiting for Congress to pass a stimulus bill. So if the Hollywood lawyers can like be where this gets started for economic recovery, uh, that's fine. Um I, don't, like, I feel like some of us have some hotter takes in here than others that like maybe this isn't the end of movie going as we know it. Know it. So <laughs> I feel like the default position is that Warner Brothers has made a very short-sighted decision to get their movies on streaming to shore up HBO Max, which is owned by their parent company, AT&T, who just doesn't give a shit about movie theaters. Um, and also it's, like when the pandemic ends, they'll regret it. There's something very 30 Rock about this, Katie, which I think you can appreciate. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, they're, all, <laughs> they're all doing this to, as you said, to shore up the stock numbers for a phone company. Um, yeah. that could not give fewer shits about the theatrical experience or really movies. I mean, yeah, they, the microwaves division is underperforming, yeah. so the Shinehart Wig Corporation has to pay. Exactly. Pivot. I mean, like, they don't care that they're sacrificing the billion-dollar-plus grosses that you're able to get from a worldwide theatrical release <laughs> because the launch of HBO Max was such a self-implosive disaster. I mean, it's like such a botched job that any one of us with our absolute lack of uh, managerial planning at that level could have foreseen um, and the, because of that, movie theaters have to die in the cinema along with it. I don't think that's going to, what's going to happen necessarily, but uh, that's certainly how it feels. Uh, but, Things can yeah. die and be reborn. Let's I mean, they, ha- they have movies have been dying and being reborn since the moment they were invented. And this is yeah. just another chapter in that long and seemingly never ending story. Um, but never uh, ending story. <laughs> but uh, I did want to start. Let's start granular. I want to start with Dave, uh, who threw yeah. out a, a take that definitely raised at least one of my eyebrows when all this shit was going down. 
about about how um, the, the real reason the movie theaters are going under is because they didn't let people text, which is what people wanted to do in theaters. And now <laughs> this is the fate that we deserve. Yeah. And now the phone company's like, well, we're going to get our money anyway. So <laughs> fuck all of you. I'm just let uh, them like, text. Let the people text. <laughs> the theatrical experience that people are talking about it going away is going to be saved because I think the theatrical experiences that we really like are in theaters that like give a shit and sometimes it's repertory theaters and whatnot where we aren't um, like that worried about <clears throat> and what is going to have to go under or like Patches says be torn down and then reborn like a phoenix from the ashes are your AMCs, your Regals, your shitty movie experiences. But those are also going to exist. They're just going to exist in something like the fucking texting theater. Because here's the thing, is teenagers, you could give them as much as they want to do at home. And sure, they could Netflix and chill as like a way of telling their parents they're doing something else. But you're not going to convince them to like not have a movie theater or movie theater like event to go to. You can't force that uh, dollar into staying at home. Whether or not you could force them into going to movies or not, you know, was the debate we were having with like I think the whole texting row. But just like the basic thing is, I think a lot of people freaked out that like, you know, the theatrical experience is gone because of this HBO Max deal. This HBO Max deal is more like. This deal is to the movie industry as Trump is to the idea of what we how we understood democratic government, because now basically what HBO Max has said is you have no monetary judgment for how a movie does uh, when this model continues. And it's not if this model continues, because they're going to figure out one way to split it, even if they have a theatrical runway and a streaming way. So if this stays it's not that we're going to stop getting movies. It's that all the guilds are going to have to renegotiate much like around like 2008 when streaming first came around, except now you're negotiating without a back end box office trap door. That's quantifiable outside of the company you sell it to. And I honestly don't know how that goes, but that's a huge like legal battle at the end of it. We're still going to have the movie system. It's just going to rearrange itself. So different people make, money for other stupid reasons i think why are we gonna have the movie system though like why do you why do you have faith that that system will continue to exist because there's because we still have shakespeare in the park in theory like, okay it's... but like but we're talking about something different like we're talking about like an entire industry built on it that like if if wonder woman doesn't exist and make a billion dollars like eight other movies don't get made as a result well the question um, is uh, oh sorry no, yeah, no uh, she was asking you a question you should answer I mean, in like that package model, yes, but already like that was sort of uh, we, people were kicking against the idea that you could sort of build movies around that. And I think like that might be part of the system that needs to change. And because otherwise it'll be the thing that we fear or that we've talked about fearing in this podcast, which is, you know, sort of the absolute disappearance of the middle budget movie for adults. Yeah. Uh, which I hope just becomes... But isn't um, that what streaming does better? Like, they do the mid-budget. They do the higher, low-budget. Although, but this is... That leads me into the point that I wanted to make, which is that the quality and the kinds of things that we make is um, directly affected by the way that we watch them. 
And you will see, you know, in, in one scenario anyway, where movie theaters cease to exist on a grand scale, which um, I do think rumors of that have been overblown, uh, you will simply stop. Like people, I think younger people, people who are watching this a little bit more on the sidelines, think that this is just a direct route to getting things like Dune at home and saving them the cost of a ticket price and going out. And, and again, we're talking about a post-COVID world where, of course, I don't think you could pay any of us to go to a movie theater right now. But uh, what is going to happen is that without those billion-dollar-plus uh, high vaulted ceilings that you get from these worldwide theatrical releases, it will no longer be financially viable for studios to make films of that scale. And the the yeah. most spectacular content that you'll get will be at the size of something like The Mandalorian, which is all well and good now that you still have those larger options. But I don't think people are going to love that as a comfortable ceiling. And to Patch's point, he's right that you're getting that middle that middle type of movie um, that that movie for adults or the really only outside of award season, which has now become the only guarantor we have of getting this kind of content in a theatrical way, you're getting a lot of those on uh, streaming. You're getting Steven Soderbergh, whose entire mission plan going forward is to pump those out, you know, genre movies, starring movie stars that you can make on the cheap for HBO Max. But not everybody is Steven Soderbergh, who has, you know, given up on, you know, he's embraced the whole no more masterpieces philosophy and really is just sort of the anti-fincher and, and churning things out in the least fussy way possible. But then you have lesser artists following the same model and without the incentive for quality necessarily. You know, the only incentive is watchability and getting clicks and going to the next episode or whatever the case might be. There is a much less concerted reason for people to be developing things that are actually worth watching and the art itself will start to wither. Um, and that I think is as strong a case as any for even if the theatrical experience is not as democratic as it could be and certainly as streaming is, why you need that sort of system in order to ensure that things that that down are worth watching. Like- a24 and Neon. A24 struck a deal with Apple. Neon is pumping its movies directly to Hulu. Like, weren't some of these companies that make the movies we love to see that aren't blockbusters, but we love to see them in theaters, weren't they preparing for this moment? Well, they were preparing for the moment that we were already in before. I mean, has but has the moment changed? Well, I don't. I don't, I don't I think, know. If the, I think. I think it's. The, I mean, has, I the, has these, the making of movies changed dramatically? I guess is the question. Well, yeah. I mean, you can barely make them at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that like the the elephant in the room that that all the conversations around this talk about is is COVID. I mean, it seems obvious to, to the point where it's not even worth mentioning. But uh, a lot of these. What moves, is COVID? Okay, so um, when a bat and a person <laughs> love each other very much, um, the uh, the reality is that you know i would love in a perfect world for first of all the theater industry to be bailed out i think that really needs to happen i hope it's part of whatever package gets passed next obviously not as important important as everyday americans getting the money that they have so obviously and desperately been deprived for so many months now but um when it comes to bailing out industries i think that should be a part of it uh but you you i would love for the theaters the studios rather to sit on these movies forever but uh, 2021 is going to be a shit show. I mean, the theaters are not going to be open for the foreseeable future. And even if the vaccines are widely distributed at a reasonable rate, it's going to be until the late summer, I think, when a lot of people start to feel safe to go out in public. And even then, there's going to be a lot of risk involved. And so they need to do something with these movies. And to an extent, I understand that. But I also think that the main existential fear is just making irrevocable changes that you can't snap back when the world reverts to, I don't want to say, uh, you know, normal um, in a lot of regards, we don't want to go to normal, but in, in 
to, to something a little bit more recognizable, um, where all or business models that are not solvent during a pandemic become solvent again. And if the framework is there for that to happen, if the theater's doors are still open and they can brush off the cobwebs and get these businesses back up and running, then I think things can snap back to, I don't think the toothpaste is necessarily outside of the tube. I think, you know, Matrix 4 might open day and date on streaming, but when Matrix 5 comes and uh, Warner, you know, HBO Max has already had to rebrand three times because that name makes no sense and the content has been reshuffled again and the windows have changed, then you might have another 17-day window in theaters and maybe that becomes the new norm. But I do think the dynamic will probably reverse again. But yeah, um, you don't think people are going to get used you don't think people are going to get used to having no. what they want? I don't they think they will it? either no. because we're still in the COVID moment. And the hope is we're going to leave the COVID moment and part of going back to normal be an urge to do these things. Like I mean, 2021 I, yes. is still COVID time. I love movies. So I see, you know, more movies in theaters than like other people. But still like four out of five of them are like movies that I didn't really necessarily wanted to see. I just went to like it came out and it looked interesting. Like presumably we get back to that which is like the hope. I just don't know what content needs to be that waiting there for it. I'm thinking, you know? yeah. I, mean, I think, I think people look, uh, parents who need to get out the fuck out of their house and hire a babysitter. will go to the movies. Teenagers who need to smooch in the back seat. will go in the movies. Not everyone has the perfect basement to be able to like hand job your friends. And, and you got to go to the movies, you know, this is the hand thing. Do, your do, do any wow. of you guys yeah. have a hand basement? I have, I have a basement. No, one's, oh no one's giving hand jobs. I put an old TV. To my Check knowledge. your privilege. You can go give a hand job. Get out of New York City, David. <laughs> um, I mean, the point is that people will will have a need to go somewhere, and the movies have always filled that that void. So people. But the, the problem is the that option to, is if they're to there, prevent they the will movies go, from but... becoming Shakespeare in the Park or you know the opera or whatever the case might be, there have to be enough venues. For it to remain, yeah. Uh, some my affordable. my local theater just closed this, today. The day of recording this, we finally threw in the towel on the local Maplewood, New Jersey theater. They're they're not renewing their lease, and this is it's going to be more and more of that, right? Like the wow. theaters yeah. will go away. Those, and now, those like, theaters... should I buy a movie theater? Like in two years <laughs> when the rebirth? How happens, financially solvent are you? Feeling? I don't know. Could I? Can I get a loan? How does it work? I, I feel like I could run a pretty cool movie theater in the like post-pandemic revival of movies. Movies are back. I like I like this movie of your of the later latter half of your life. But this is or where yeah. the, like a, the this entre- is where I think I started a movie theater. <laughs> this is where the, <laughs> the legitimate majestic. worry is, though. The Majestic is a real movie theater in Stanford, Connecticut, where I believe I saw the Majestic. Um, and it did not enhance the 40x experience. <laughs> did not enhance the experience at all. But uh, I, the real worry is is those kind of movies that would play at the majestic, uh, the fake one, not the real one so much, uh, which was a chain. But the is that you know the specialty market, which was already in a state of immense disrepair, is going to completely fall apart if those. Uh, local theaters, the specialty theaters, the indies, and art houses. But that's what I'm getting so at. Why closed? Why do they have to fall apart when the streaming deals are already in place and they've been figuring out how to make movies like this before COVID? Because when the they, can't was already... they can't function right they now. Can't they they, they can't get through. Yeah, they, they they need some kind of loan to be able to stay. Oh no, open. sorry, not the movie theaters. The, I thought you were talking about the movies. No, I'm not. I'm not worried about. I'm not worried about A24's gotcha. financial solvency right now. I'm talking about the theater in your town that just closed. Um, yeah. And, you know, if there had been a bailout like there was in some other countries that affected these businesses, like they could have they could have uh, just, right. you know, gone on hiatus and come back one day soon. Yeah. But um, like, that didn't happen. And those businesses, the, um, the lease, when the lease is gone, it starts becoming a condo. You know, there's no way of putting that toothpaste back in the A bad place for a condo, though. 
it's gonna yeah happen. i mean my local indie theater that i am on the board of is a nonprofit and is closing until june like they just decided to stop operating a couple weeks ago like and had to lay some people off but like has a hope to reopen um and that's kind of it's like as basically being a nonprofit, i think they're able to function as if it's having some kind of financial cushion in that way. And that's the ideal that you would hope for. But I think a lot more places are going to do what Patches' local theater is. And like more than the indie places, I worry about the loss of the AMCs and like the, what we keep talking about, a place to go and get out of the house. Like the movies are a really big democratic gathering place where you don't have to spend a lot of money. You can go and like, God knows we've seen people sleeping at the AMC 25 in Times Square. Like it is a, it is important to have a third place to go outside of your home and your work. And all of those places are suffering right now and the movies seem like one of the ones we very well might not get back. Yeah, in the, the next time David over. watches all the Marvel movies in a row and starts stinking up his living room, I mean, that's going to be that. The, Ship him off it's to the movie theater. David's going to be at the 42nd Street. The Disney, it's going to be at the 42nd Street Disney Plus streaming right. multiplex. I mean, do you think that's, that's I mean, I, I made yes, a joke that's to absolutely that what's a while ago. That's that absolutely like, what's going to happen. Amazon Prime presents the movies we never saw in COVID uh, sponsored yes, by Yes, because that's, le- that's, le- that's legal now. Yeah, so why would already, you... it's, abs- it's legal now because of the rulings uh, that happened last year. And it is uh, was already happening with Netflix buying the Paris and sure. uh, yeah. Man's Chinese and and so forth. And I, so I think that like movie theaters will exist if, if only in big cities, but um, you know, are they? And that sucks. If they only, yeah. even if they only exist in big cities, that, that's a huge loss that I don't know that like, it's not the biggest loss of the pandemic, but it's the kind of thing that this Warner, <laughs> this uh, Warner Brothers decision really gives me pause. It just feels like it's speeding that path. I don't know if it's a big loss. It's just a big change. I, but I'm the, trying to, the, I'm try, and I'm trying to really draw a distinction. But here. the problem is that, wanna... like, like a dream, our brain is trying to, our collective brain, the hive mind, is trying to make sense of this Warner Brothers decision, trying to find order in the chaos. When in fact, every story that we read about it that's at all reported suggests that the executives of Warner Brothers were simply panicking about the the botched launch of HBO Max and doing whatever they could right. to raise the stock price in 2021. And it was just chaos. There's no rhyme or reason for it. It's purely a myopic way of. Uh, just juicing that stock price and we can all look at it as you know yeah like the the, the, it means this and it means that and maybe it will mean those things but not because it was sort of the natural order from which it came to be i mean like it it was sort of a uh a forced destruction and i think that it that in some way makes me more bullish that things can you know return to a greater emphasis to theatrical can come out of this, but um, because it isn't necessarily the natural order, uh, but I don't know. We'll see. This weekend, lots of movies were released onto your streaming services slash video on demand. We're going to talk about Mank a little bit. But first, I want to talk about a movie I saw on Amazon, uh, which is The Sound of Metal, which is a Riz Ahmed starring picture about a metal, heavy metal drummer. Sound of Metal, uh, talk to me. Make me want to feel like a teenager. <laughs> this is why David can, can never leave New York City. He just starts singing <laughs> LCD sound system with no warning. Uh, heavy metal drummer loses his hearing and has to deal with how that changes his life and his relationship. And sort of as 
he is learning how uh, to deal with this new, um, uh, I guess, version of his life. We get to take a peek into his background and uh, his girlfriend's background as addicts. And uh, it goes, I think, a lot of fantastic character places that make like the Riz Ahmed performance really like the cornerstone of this movie because in terms of like the technical aspects of it it's really a lot of occasions to use sound design to try to communicate things which i am it's not that i'm not a big fan of i do have mild tinnitus in my left ear i've had it for mm, like three years i think uh something like that but um when this movie first started and he's playing drums and he starts to lose his hearing by just like a high pitched, like beeping, uh, that one was like a little off my beeping tone. So like when it came on, I was watching it with Java and I'm like, Oh, this movie's going to be real interesting to watch. Cause I was like, Oh no, is this going to be like beeps? I don't know if it's me or whatnot, oh, but because boy. of that and because of my onset of tinnitus that also came, uh, with like a period of time when I had a, like a bunch of earwax that I apparently had been neglecting. I really empathized with those first couple of days where you're like, surely there is a way to fix this. And uh, Riz Ahmed's character, you know, sort of gets uh, trapped in that and um, that uh, obsession to try to fix his problem sort of leads him to a dark place uh, from his addict past uh, so I really connected with the movie on an emotional level and connected with the performance on an emotional level. When it all ended up, I do feel like there are parts of it that um, maybe sagged a little bit uh, that keep it from being like a perfectly uh, assembled movie. But It is 140 of... minutes long, if I remember correctly. Woo! Which, it wow. is. Uh, which I, I don't, I don't, I remember feeling its length. And I say this as someone who, loves long movies um yeah by the time i got to the end and third act of the movie i was like i kind of wish i had spent more time in the third act uh than getting him to that position Hmm. uh uh, where he finally got to you know meet his girlfriend's family and we got to get deeper into the characters at that point because otherwise i think there are parts of it that play slightly after school especially if it weren't for the deep performances and the cast that they talking about yeah, the, the cast. I think of of uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. It, it's been uh, like 15 months since I've seen this movie. Uh, predominantly deaf actors that sort of populate the the second act of the movie, um, where he's off on that retreat, are excellent. And I remember those scenes yeah. having like a real bracing in, uh, immediacy to them. But I just to go back to the length for a second. Part of what we were talking about in terms of those HBO Max and streaming movies for adults and whatnot is that uh, you now see most of those movies that are kind of thoughtless and, to- and and tossed out and all, you know, churned together for the sake of content tend to run in the 80 to like 95 minute range. Um, and it is a real outlier these days to see a bona fide indie run, you know, longer than 100 minutes, let alone 140. And I applaud it in theory, even if this movie doesn't always make the best use of its time. Um, so I think that like yeah. the running time is almost a demarcation of seriousness in terms of uh, films potential mm. these days. I mean, I think it, it was probably not entirely out of mind when Amazon decided that this was going to be an awards horse this year, um, if only for the sound design and Riz Ahmed's performance. Yeah, Katie, and there, you got, uh, go ahead. 
But yeah, there's something about the way that this character has to change dramatically over the course of the movie that you do, that the length adds to it. And I agree with Avery that the, the middle section where he's in the support group and it's largely deaf actors. And like there, I, I get the after school special thing you're saying, Dave, but like there's just so much lived experience to it. And there's so much where you are identifying with this guy where like, I think if I were suddenly deaf, I would also be like, how do I fix this? How do I get around this? And the idea of embracing deafness as a culture, um, I'm like familiar with it, but I like hadn't really grappled with it. Like, for myself until watching this movie um and Rosamund just carries so much of it like you're kind of watching all of that transformation happening on his face like he's always had such a great expressive face for all this stuff Did, and having a movie that kind of focuses on him like that brings out so much of it Katie you're talking about you know the, the idea of this character sort of embracing deafness or at least the, the deaf community well that he meets. he's surrounded by people who are doing so he's sort sure, of a lot more I, I, I kind of want to dance around this because I don't want to spoil anything that happens towards the sure. end of the movie but it does seem like it's going in that direction. He's sort of making peace with his new lot in life and the people that it's brought him to and finding um, some, some joy and some light there. Uh, and then he, there are decisions that the character makes that seem to go against that. And in a human, mm-hmm. in like an appreciably human way that's conflicted and not simply, um, you know, just coming to this, this, this finality of like, this is what it's going to be and roll credits. And I appreciate that, but um, it does feel like in the context of this movie, some of the choices towards the end kind of bump against the the direction the movie's going. I remember yeah. feeling that way. It just, I mean, it rolls, it rolls the character. It feels like it rolls the character back to like 30 minutes. Like you watch him go through a progression and learn some things and make some moves in like another direction. But then all of a sudden, like over the course of two or three scenes, he's suddenly slightly reverted. And yeah. I, I think it's interesting to hear what happens to him after that. But it did make me question, like, I've already been through an hour and 20 minutes of movie at that point. So yeah. But there's also weird. something about setting him up as an addict, I think, helps get you there. Like, someone who yeah. has this history of, like, of taking a step forward and a step back and making impulsive decisions. And, like, that's, you know, that's the kind of the toolkit he has to grapple with it at the end there, which I think is, gives the, move, the ending its power. I, I think that's a really interesting yeah. point because you're kind of how the movie speaks to the addiction of hearing for him in a way. Like, the, uh, mm-hmm. the addiction to this, this way of interacting with the world um, and why his ability or inability to divorce himself from that dovetails with the language and, and thought processes of addiction. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting movie. It's worth, worth watching. It's a good I movie. Yeah. yeah. I think the worst thing about it is the band's title's name is Black Gammon, and it, they just don't mention it. <laughs> totally Hold on. Why, why do we think that's a bad thing? Dude, that's just the worst thing about it. I'm just like, it's a horrible name for a two-person metal band. In Black a Gammon? Very Patches disagrees. I mean, Black Gammon rules, number one. That's all I got. I think making your movie, your metal, your heavy metal, your emotionally two addicts making heavy metal music and you give them a pun band name and then you don't really let us hear any of their songs. That's the only thing I really didn't. I really didn't like about the movie. The rest, I think it's like uh, definitely something you should check out, especially if you've ever had a weird moment with your own hearing. Or I guess have like a person who has joined the deaf community in your life. And, you know, you weren't raised with it because, like Katie was saying, I certainly wasn't. And this movie makes me think, maybe I should know more sign language. Just in general. Yeah. Yeah. What can we all learn in 2021? Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. learn some sign language. All right, that was Sound of Metal. Amazon Prime. You can watch it now if you want. 
finally time to talk about Mank. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as David Fincher <laughs> demanded, we will we will talk about about his film Mank. Um, God, I felt like we were talking about it all year, mostly because we were looking forward to like a real big swing movie coming out, and here it is. Mank um, has been. I guess in the process of being made since the 90s when David Fincher's dad, Jack Fincher, started writing this script about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, the, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. Um, and- J has real power as a middle initial, like, like historically. What else are you thinking? I think we have – well, you know. Donald um, J. Trump? No, no, no. I, I don't I'm, know who that is. I was thinking cursed, of uh, Homer, Homer J. Simpson. Okay. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I just think that between those two examples alone, there's just a lot of heft as that is a letter. I mean, so Jay Herman, on his own. Herman J. Magwitz, Jay, Homer, Jay Simpson, and Donald yeah. J. Trump. We, but like okay, J as list. the first uh, name, as the first letter for a first name is a little weak to me. But J as a middle initial is, is like a, it's like a all hook. the Johns listening right now. That's good. Yeah, Nelson I mean, J. Rockefeller. Oh my God. Ooh. I mean, it's like that J it's like a, a muscle. Deep. It's like a bicep holding up the yeah, weight. It's of true. The it is a, it's a middle initial. You don't ignore. Like, you know, that J is there. Mm. Well, unfortunately yeah. Fincher kind of ignores this uh, J middle initial. doesn't really get into it much in the uh, Manx saga <laughs> that he has put Real together. Real opportunity there. <laughs> And instead chooses to focus on Mank's accomplishments and pitfalls as a human navigating uh, old Hollywood. Uh, apparently, David Fincher was thinking about doing this movie with Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster at some point. Mm. Uh, mm. We, we missed that, thank God, and decided to go with Gary Oldman instead, which uh, wow. he has his own controversies. Which, you can see uh, it, though. Like... Really... Kevin Spacey Gross. in his prime would have – you can understand what that Mank would have looked like. Yes, yeah. even more of like a parody of Golden Age of Hollywood. More voices, more, I don't know, swank. This movie moves, though. I mean, this movie it moves. is all about – it moves, and yet it's like soup. Uh, this movie is very, very strange to me um, in that I'm not even sure – like where Fincher's done so many interviews. So I've read many, many conversations with Fincher leading up to this. Um, and I'm not sure any one conversation has kind of cracked Mank as like, I understand what Fincher's throwing himself into here. The movie has, there's so much pastiche behind the movie as people have probably heard. It's in black and white. It has like mono track sound that make all the voices sound canny and, and like old film. It has cigarette burns and the lights fade in and out between scenes. It's like, it's like a film student playing with iMovie in college and being like, <laughs> I can make films. Um, I'm, it, oh, all right. All right. I, That's yeah, so real. A little barbed there. Um, but it, I mean, it's very, there's a, there's a, uh, all the playfulness and all the visuals kind of make Mank like separate from its story. Uh, it, it feels a little distant at times to me. Uh, and I'd be curious about, Talking about Mank, I mean, it's it's jumping all over the timeline, too. This is not a traditional biopic. It's certainly not about the making of Citizen Kane in a really hacky, like, art, what was that movie? Archeo 281? From, Archeo uh, 287. 287. Uh, um, yeah, which, which was not, 
Which was not, wait, was it 281 or is 287? It's 281, you're right. RKO 287 ah. is the RKO film about uh, murder. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. or, about conspiracy um, theorists who saw things in uh, Citizen Kane. Um, or is it, wait, how, how fucking drunk am I right now? Is, it the 187, is 187 murder? 187's murder. You're going full okay. mank on this call. So RKO <laughs> 287 is nothing. RKO 287 is just the RKO movie RKO they made. 281 is the Right, movie. but RKO 287 would have been the movie about the, the, the the, um, uh, what's his name? Naomi Watts' ex-husband. Uh, he's Jewish. Uh, he's, Leif uh, thank you. Um, it would have been like Ray <laughs> Leif Donovan. Schreiber. Yeah, Ray Donovan himself. It would have been a, he would have been playing the the maker of some random RKO movie that came six movies after Citizen Kane. Jesus Christ! I'm I'm in a whirlwind <laughs> mag style right now where I'm floating between past and present and making sense of my intoxicated life. I mean, this movie is jumping around from his meetings with Wells to his earlier days at at, at Paramount to the making of Citizen Kane to his encounters with Hearst and whining and dining and screaming because it's and really about on the floor. it's really about ethics in uh, Hollywood journalism. Jesus. <laughs> Okay, I mean, let's take that's a deep what breath it's here. About. What what is what is Mank about for you guys? Are you connecting to this film on an emotional level, a technical level? Does it all gel for you? I'm feeling my my first viewing, and I gotta say, by the end of the credits, I was like, I should watch this movie again soon. Like, I want to. I found it very entertaining in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure I connected with it on like a deep level, thematic level, or even like a performance level. I, I'm I'm kind of again like. Oldman's whole performance, which is is good, feels really distant to me. But like, what did you guys connect to or not connect to with Mech? I really liked how it looked and operated. I like all the film schooly jokey stuff. I like the mono track. I like that. Wait, Dave, can I ask you a question? Sh- yeah, I, th- I think if anyone I know could give me a decent answer for this that would satisfy me, it would be you. Why is it okay that Mank was shot digitally? Other than David Fincher being such an obsessive perfectionist that he cannot abide the chaos of shooting on film and the random artifacts that can get in uh, when, when you do that. Is that his explanation? I mean, I mean it's we certainly don't, my explanation him? for, oh, for okay. why. Let's say he I'm wants gonna, to take a billion takes. He can save a whole lot of money. I'm going to give this answer without uh, uh, opening an avenue to go down this discussion topic, but there's no reason to shoot on film anymore. Technology has gotten beyond that. Okay. Um, Plus, okay. Netflix the, doesn't I, allow you, you to shoot on film. Okay, that's, that's a practical answer. Uh, I just want to, as someone who has been writing a story but never rarely sometimes always uh the last couple weeks um and has been looking at that movie even on my computer um and also martin eden and i was watching another movie that was shot in 60 millimeter uh absolutely wrong you can tell from the moment a film that was shot on that was well shot on film certainly i think you can i think you can make a film Um, there's actually a really well i'm gonna self-promote a little bit here a really interesting article that we ran on polygon last year uh talking to the cinematographer of Knives Out, uh, the guy Ryan Johnson works with a ton. Ryan Johnson, a devout 35mm film person, um, now going digital because his DP has kind of cracked the code for making the digital picture look however you want. Like if Fincher wanted this to look more like film, he could have made it look it more like film and you would not yes. be able to tell. That I think my one great guess. way to make it look like film would, would have been to shoot it on film, but 
that is. Are not you having the, the public the enemies whole... problem with this movie, David? Is get get into <laughs> no, your own no, criticism. Can you not deal with whole, a period whole... piece of digital? I mean, specifically to deal with this movie, the whole purpose of the movie is to deal in that thing where it's telling you what it is, but you're seeing the artifice of it. Like from like it acts like film, but it's obviously digital. To like you think that a sun is lighting somebody in the scene, but another angle yeah, shows that it's actually a spotlight on Amanda Seyfried. Is... The kind of answer I want and that I appreciate. Mm. Uh, okay, well, I, I mean, all of my answers were true. I just gave no. three of them. Um, so it's revealing the, Hollywood artifice by case. shooting it on digital. The last I mean, answer I, I, is the most interesting of the others. I mean, maybe it's possible that uh, that the uh, Steve Yed, Yedlin Yedlin. I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head. Which for a 36 uh, year old man is uh, you know an Olympian feat of the DP of uh, Knives Out. Patches, come on, help me out here. No, nothing. Uh, oh, Patches went mute. Okay. Oh, I bet. Um, Steve Yedlin. But, you know, maybe he can, can work that magic, and that's great. I remember Knives Out looking, I would imagine, exactly like Ryan Johnson wanted it to, but I don't, you know, it, 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 that movie is also sort of splitting the difference between the old school whodunit, a movie that belongs to a sort of antiquated genre, but also comes at it from a modern angle. Uh, and so on. What's your criticism of Mank here? Anyway, I, I I feel like you haven't said your feeling on the look. I of like it. what Dave's Dave's explanation for why this movie thematically was shot digitally is fine. That that passes muster for me. Um, in principle, watching a movie like this with its uh, digitally inserted cigarette burns, um, which of course so many people are only aware of because of Fight Club, which uh, yeah, <laughs> David Fincher has come full circle. Uh, he really likes which, ma- which when it shows up, it made me laugh for that purpose. Yeah, I like this too. movie as a meta movie. I like this movie as like David Fincher and his dad decided to make a movie about dudes in Hollywood. And here is what they came up with mm-hmm. after like sifting through it. And I've heard I someone like argue that, that the cigarette bun- burns, like making you think of Fight Club is kind of like an error in judgment, like that it's like kind of self-parody. But I think you're right that it's like, it's the point. It's having fun with it. It's like, I know that you know about cigarette buns because of Fight Club. Let's do it. Yeah, I think the Fight Club yeah. element about it is very tertiary. I think, you know, it's it's more. Yeah, of course. But like, I don't think, it's, <laughs> I don't think the movie is taking itself so seriously that it's yes, a problem. I do think, think that the cigarette burns are meant to be a joke. I don't know if the butt of the yes. joke is Fight Club, but I think that they are sure. meant to be a joke. I think a lot of this movie is skewed through. Manx's own sardonic, um, you know, side eye, uh, which is the register that he's in for basically the entire running time until he gets uh, there's a little acrimony in his voice that you can hear towards the end of the movie um, when it becomes a little bit more apparent and crystallizes that this is really a movie I think about morality and about being a cog in the machine of big business and the messaging that goes out into the world but um, trying to resist the function of that machine Um, I think there are probably a lot of interesting parallels if you were taking the time to think through them about what's happening with your Christopher Nolan's and HBO Max versus uh, Hmm. you know the, the, the scales are a little bit the stakes rather are a little bit different um what mankowitz is eventually fighting for or raging against is more i think an argument that we'd see politically these days in terms of fake news which is um a, a topic that's very relevant to the last half of this movie with um the Upton Sinclair gubernatorial campaign in 1934, and some of the camp, the, which the Hollywood studios were very, very much against, um, because uh, for the reasons that a big corporation would ever be against socialist uh, politics, and um, they conspired to uh, create fake news, then tried to commission Mankiewicz to play a role in that, uh, and so forth. And this is all a lot more 
uh, you know, n- not only pertinent to, but explicit in the movie about, you know, what the movie is about literally than I think a lot of people were expecting. Um, this is not the Shakespearean love of Citizen Kane. Which, but this is the best part. Like, I wanted yeah. more of it. I wanted to yeah. like, get more in the weeds and know and, like, see beads of sweat running down Mang's face that weren't just alcohol related. And, like, I, I don't know. There was no tension to this movie. It was very yeah, it, soupy, it doesn't, as I said. It's, like, weird. I do think that if... <laughs> If you want to make a movie that fuses the writing of Citizen Kane with, that sees this as, you know, one of the real inflection points and why that movie came to be and why it had the edge that it did, then that's fine. But I think that the way that Mank kind of, sh- it almost feels like it's shoehorning the Upton Sinclair campaign into the third act and it, it doesn't, resonate in the same degree that I think that it really needed to in order to justify why this movie is orbiting around this this event. It it kind of feels like you're watching a subplot only to realize in hindsight that that was the meat of the movie. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I, I think mean, it's I, important I, for the turning point of his relationship with Louis B. Mayer and hers. Like you see, you know, basically these two dinner parties contrasted from the beginning from the end where he's become disillusioned with how these guys are functioning. Like, I think you need that whole, the Sinclair thing is like a, a dovetail in some way, but I think it links back importantly, not just to like his relationship with those characters, but why Citizen Kane is as biting as it is and why he fought so hard for it. I think it, uh, I, the side plot is about why he wants to put his name on it. Yeah. Like, I think that's it. And I think it, feeds in pretty well. I, I will agree, David, there isn't a whole bunch of tension. Like the tension that there, there is a little bit of, you know, tension towards the end of the movie just because they're intercutting into a very tense couple of scenes. So it's like, oh my God, Orson Welles is here. And oh my God, Charles Dance is here. And I would, I use the character don't name forget, and Don't name. forget Lily Collins' husband is I lost thought, in war. I thought Lily that's, Collins yeah, was brilliant in this movie. I think Amanda Seyfried... Really? Lily Collins is great. She's I in think it. she... Yeah. I, no, but I think that Amanda Seyfried has the flashier roles. And if, you know, you worked at like a Vanity Fair and you would have to profile from someone from this movie, I Whoa. guess that would be the basic pick. But um, um, kidding. Uh, but uh, I think Lily Collins does some real sort of yeoman's work here where she is holding the whole movie together um, at Mank's bedside and sort of what? like trying to graft a uh, meld the two worlds between the fictional and the real between the Hollywood lore and what's happening in the world outside and uh, she's the she's the only gateway character is what yeah, David's and, trying and to I mean that's I mean, true I think she's she's she, definitely a it's a credit to her performance the, the that drama. she kind of disguises that she's the well, character who's in a 40s drama that this is like that would have been made at the time like the entire ending of her like standing with Mank on the yes. hillside like is the ending to i haven't seen mrs miniver but i imagine it would fit right into mrs miniver um, and that's one of the few shots where it feels like that could have been lifted not only in the composition of the shot but also the sort of aesthetic of it and the texture of the shot yeah. exactly from a movie from that time period but it's kind of weird to isolate that entirely basically in one character right I mean, I guess there's uh, also this stuff where, like, he's worried that guy's going to kill himself at GM spoilers. Um, that kind of gets, like, film noir Like, there's there's a little bit more pastiche in there. But, I, I like, it, it gives me a distance from that character, like what you guys are saying from the film as a whole. Also, it's weird that Lily James played the, like, clipped British assistant to Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. Mm. And now Lily Collins is playing the clipped British mm. assistant to Gary Oldman in this movie. I like Lily that. James in Darkest Hour, too. I mean, I think all the I liked her in Darkest Hour a lot. Um... <laughs> Pro I mean, Lilies I think, on this podcast. Uh, Gary, Gary Oldman's performance, to go back to what Patch was talking about earlier, is strange. I think, you know, he plays the the flop sweat drunk 
thing well enough, but I, I do think the movie suffers. And this is a movie that I'm net positive on for sure, by the way. I mean, this is a movie I think about in terms yeah. of end of year honors and whatnot. And I, I think the movie, the world is more interesting for having this movie in it. Um, even for some of the more nauseating conversations it's engendered online, maybe this one included, I don't know. But I think that his character doesn't, the way he embodies his character and maybe to a degree the way it's written doesn't really allow a lot of light in in turn a lot of air for a human being to occupy that space he always kind of feels like he's in that court gesture mode that that hearst calls him out for in this you know long and not entirely successful put him final in scene. that position i feel like the first third of this movie is the kind of like snappy old school almost farce dialogue just like whip pans it's the industry oh we're all talking yeah, about like the dialogue is cracking i mean like a lot of that yeah. dialogue is really is really fun it's in its fun. own archway and i think it lands but it's not ser- it's not it doesn't give him gravity or it doesn't find something early it doesn't plant any scenes early on that i think kind of blossom and and turn into anything heavier and when it when the movie turns heavier he's still kind of doing the court jester act, even when he's delivering his drunken speeches about Don Quixote or, you know, like Mm. when he's, when he's ruminating on his life. And now that he's found something serious to do, Oh wait, maybe being a for hire screenwriter, I can, I can make a point. I can have politics. Like it doesn't seem like Fincher is, is ready to like make that leap with him. He's still play. He's still getting his lead actor to kind of play the same tone. And then the movie never, I don't know. It's just not swinging the, in a different directions. I think one of the struggles of the screenplay. Well, I think one of the struggles of the screenplay is that it can't afford for its version of Meng to be too nuanced because it's trying to keep him as this cog in this big machine and, and constantly underline his lack of agency and lack of power that he has um, in the way that the, sort of Hollywood, sort of or, his orbit in Hollywood and so on. And it can't really afford for it, this to be a really nuanced, deep digging character study. It needs to be this sort of macro portrait. But because of that, it does feel like his epiphany, his growth from just going along with the flow to sort of taking a stand and biting the hand that feeds him feels underdeveloped to me. And it's, it's a tension that I don't think the movie is really able to reconcile. And so it kind of just sits there and waits for the chips to fall where they may. Mm-mm. I think the, the movie at least knows that it's going to have that hollow center at it. Cause even the trailer lampshaded it with the line about, you can't tell a whole person's life in two hours. You can just leave a vague impression and the fucking monkey grinder parable that they ended the trailer on, which is like, am I supposed to know this parable? And then I finally, you know, got to see it. And it uh, turns out to movie. be the whole climax of the movie. It turns out to be the whole climax of the movie. But the idea that like that is who he is and whether or not he could perform outside of that or exists outside of that is sort of, it's hinted at the sides with his um, village of people that he uh, saved charitably. But yeah, the movie doesn't seem interested in showing us the make thought process because by the time, even when we're backtracking to how he gets the job, that isn't really discussed as much as why, you know, what he's doing becomes influenced by this one memory, just by use really of montage. That's the other, like, David Fincher is really knocking out of uh, the park again with titles on this one. Uh, Cause 
he he like shows you what flashbacks are with actual screenplay. I do like slots. that. I do like yeah, that. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, so, you God knows you need it. It's interesting because you know, if I had to distill, and it would be a fool's errand to do this, maybe, but David Fincher's entire career into this like one idea, it would be the tension between order and chaos. I think you see that. In the, oh. with the technology with which he works and also it's evident throughout his films and apparently to a degree that Dave is disgusted by by that ugh uh, we'll investigate no but no I, I thought you were going to be like if you could narrow David Fincher down to one thing it's that titles it's titles yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean hey I, I will never forget sitting there in the, at the Majestic seeing Panic Room which I saw twice <laughs> on like, the day it opened and those uh, titles are in the air they're those, really there it was crazy <laughs> But um, <laughs> I felt like the titles were coming into the movie theater with me, and we were all—they were a afraid. character in the film as well. <laughs> I mean, in that movie where it's like eighty-six minutes long and everything counts. The, yeah, they may as well have been. But um, and I think this movie is interesting to me beyond its morality um, as a, a literalization of some of those themes. This, this idea of order and chaos—you see it reflected in in the aesthetic and how he uses the digital filmmaking to create this sort of airless perfection. Um, but also in this, this, you know, assembly line machine that uh, Mank found himself working in as sort of an agent of chaos and trying to retain some sort of human element that was honest and had integrity. And, and that's interesting to me as well, but it, it, the movie can't fly off the handle. I think as much as you want a story like this to do. I also think it's, it's interesting in a trend piece sort of way that uh, Mank came out on the same day as Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which is another movie about, which stars Mads Mikkelsen and his bunch of his friends. Uh, I likened it to um, that Josh Trank movie, Chronicle, where instead of finding a rock that makes these kids super powered, it's a bunch of 40-year-old married dads finding alcohol and becoming invincible. <laughs> And uh, Mank is sort of – it's like there's these double feature of better when I'm drunk movies uh, that are coming out on the same day and highlighting the uh, glorious powers of alcohol. It was very strange. Katie, Man. What, what did you make of, of, of Mank? I feel like I need more of your <laughs> – I feel your like I'm still figuring out what to make of Mank. I've watched it kind of like – I watched it one time and then I kind of like skimmed around in the second viewing. And I think not trying to fit the pieces together because I think the tonal stuff we're talking about as you're watching it, you're like, where am I going? Like what what movie am I watching? And then you're in Sinclair and then you're back at the Hearst Castle and then you're back with Mary Davies in the very end. Like it does feel like it – jumps around but then on a second viewing you're like well this is the movie that it is and i find this a lot of times like a second viewing is something where you can just kind of meet the movie on its own terms and it's got these great performances it's got amanda seyfried who i think is great in it uh she does have the flashier role but i think every scene she's in really counts like she's this excellent. early scene where they're all like it's like a hearse dinner party but like it's louis mayor's birthday and they're all in this huge sitting room and like if you've seen citizen kane you know these interiors are massive um and it's you know one of those scenes where you're like how did they cut between all the people how do they keep track of it but like you're so clear on where you are and who's talking and what like what the mood of the room is and that kind of stuff is just fantastic to watch like all the touring around the back lot works that way too um and the way that it's cynical about old hollywood which i don't i think we all have thought about it enough to kind of know better like you know we know that judy garland was like put on drugs as a child and all this stuff but i don't know that like very many movies have tackled it to the way that this does and i, I like the way that it takes on hollywood as a business and an industry run by like mostly shitty people like including irving thalberg who was like you know the boy genius of warner brothers who like not Warner mgm who like made all these beautiful movies but was like in the pocket with everything else and it just gives you a way to think of it and reframes it in this 
expensive black and white for some reason, you know, mono sound movie. Like no one but David Fincher probably would have made it. No one but Netflix probably would have financed it. I don't think it's the version of an old MGM Citizen Kane movie that I would have made, but I'm really grateful for it. And I feel like I'm going to enjoy continuing to like go back into it, like kind of ready to meet it where it is. I want to re-edit with the cockatoo jumps transition from Citizen Kane put somewhere in the movie. Yeah, like maybe I mean, immediately halfway through, it's like cigarette burn. Cockatoo cigarette burn. <laughs> yeah, not enough uh, random shit in this mansion. You know, in Citizen Kane, you really get used to just like junk. Or also, even like, I, he could have gone even further with the techniques. It's There's one sequence where they're watching the election results come in and he does do like a... Uh, 30s and 40s inspired uh, multiple exposure through like some yeah. sort of cross wipe thing, but it's all just like masks and digitally done. And so I yeah, kind of wanted- I, 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 I'm kind of stuck on that moment, thinking about the movie more and more in the terms of just like it feels like cutting corners, or it feels kind of just like dumb for Fincher, and it wow. feels it just wow. it's like not there, real. Okay, it's not real character work. It's not real interior. It's not surreal. It's not getting to the psychology of Mank. Like it just feels kind of cheap in in a pastiche way. I just I there's I didn't like there's that something scene. like there's something kind of like playing the hits, but we know it's kind of dumb. That I think also carries over to like the score. It's hilarious to think of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross fucking writing this score. There's one part where it's like the trumpets going, and then the trumpet kind of goes, and then the typewriter keys come in on the same beats of the trumpet. Yeah, I mean, this, like, is, this, this is this is not a knock on the score, which was written to serve this movie, which it does very well. But it yes. is definitely the first score that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have written that you cannot imagine sitting down and actually just listening, even if it's totally just a soundtrack. Wrong. Yeah, I've done it writing. several times. Already, you are really? oh, yeah. because you're typing on your typewriter. No, it's um, like I that's the only context in which I would listen to really any of their work, and uh, I just could not hack it with this. I one. listen to the social network score all sure, a classic, a classic of the genre. Uh, their soul score is awesome, so we'll get there and yeah, we'll shit on so. score later. So, Whoa. soul makes look like a masterpiece. Wow. We'll shit on, we'll wow. shit on soul later. <laughs> um, uh, oh, the other thing I was going to say is that uh, I feel like I've been saying this too much. I sound like a creeper, but Tom Burke is very good and very hot as Orson Welles when he shows up at the end of the movie. You That's think all. he's good? Oh, yeah. He's, he's fine. He's kind of like a non-entity also. Everyone is. This movie I mean, reduces... He, the movie doesn't like need to be about known. Orson Welles, but I like this, I like, you know, blustering asshole who shows up at I the end of the like movie. I when he picks and, up like, that, like, uh, bunch of wine and throws it against the wall. Yeah, and I don't know. they that, write it into Citizen that, Kane. Yeah, that, see, that moment, though, feels like it's borrowed from the Shakespeare in Love version of this story. And I'm not really sure if it's the whole thing. I, I like his, I like right, Tom when, Burke's when Orson Welles. Right, when is like, ooh, we got to put this in the movie. Exactly. I like Tom Burke's Orson <laughs> Welles more as like a flowy, spectral figure in that yeah. one yeah. shot where he's walking towards the camera saying, Mank, it's Orson Welles. You or know, calling like, him on the phone <laughs> is always great. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Sure. I wish we never saw his face. Just saw his mm. voice talking, right? Or or he was fuzzy. Yeah, and I think that the movie tries to have it both ways. Um, and I do think I, I I understand what Patches is saying about um, it feeling a little bit dumbed down. I it, it does feel like there's a gear missing from what's happening. That none of it is as sophisticated as the movie is. 
led us to think that it will be, but maybe it doesn't have to be. I mean, a lot of those movies, your Miss Minivers and whatnot, were were uh, not you know the most nuanced of text, but they got the job done. Um, angrier union politics in this movie. I wanted, I, but more I do socialism and more. Like, you wanted, you, you had Bill the, Nye, the, the science the guy, as end. Upton Sinclair. What more could you possibly want out of life, let alone a movie? But I do say that as a writer, I think it's hard not to resent. Herman J. Mankiewicz for just churning out the 300-page first draft of what became Citizen Kane uh, from a bed over the course of, like, 60 days. I could barely write a fucking think piece that, like, 50 people read and 25 of them think it's stupid in 60 days. You know? It's not fair. <laughs> I'm not even drunk the whole time. Having people think that your think piece is stupid, what a privilege that they read it and they're engaging right. with it. <laughs> um, yes. It's, I'm, I'm very happy to have a David... Fincher movie again uh, yes. because it's been a hot second and he was going you know in a sort of I'm going to make slick pulpy you know like airport books into movies for everybody which was a period of time I was fine with and then there was the Mindhunter period which I was super into and this just looks like he's willing to start like interrogating himself with movies again which I'm interested to see what comes out of that I don't know if uh, stuff like Gone Girl or Girl with a Dragon Tattoo felt like flexes for David Fincher. It felt like movies he just made very, very Let's well. Let's remember that he was going to make uh, the World War Z2 movie. Okay, that's crazy. That's but my, my thing, you know, to my great surprise, because I had huge doubts about both of those movies, is that it, I, I disagree with Dave. I think that the accomplishment of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl is not just that he made, like, you know, strong, refined versions of those books. He elevated those trashy airport novels into genuine art that is to the test of time. Gone Girl, maybe to a greater degree in terms of its public reception, but uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is inexplicably phenomenal. Um, and I, I have think not seen it since 2011 or whenever Incredible it came out. movie. And watching it um, in context with the first, the, the Swedish take on that same book it's like the clearest evidence that david fincher is a genius um, did you I just mean, rewatch these or has this stuck no, with you i know i mean now? girl with the dragon tattoo uh, i watched a couple years ago for something and it's been a favorite for a while i mean i i thought it sort of transcended its source material the first time i saw it but it only has got more powerful and offers a like two and a half hour score to write to which is not something we can take for granted um but mm. the um so I, I i actually really didn't mind fincher in airport novel mode i did mind it i, mean, I, I didn't want to say and i didn't really say minded it was just more like oh this is what david fincher is doing now this seems like it could be a turn into like well it's time for like some movies for me and i hope they continue letting him try it because it's entertaining and inoffensive in a time when i want that from like <laughs> my movies um and and fincher's dad who is given sole credit on the screenplay obviously even though obviously work was done after his death uh which occurred 17 years ago um i think is very well positioned for an oscar nomination which leads into my long-standing theory that we should only be giving oscar nominations to people who've been dead for 17 years mm-hmm. no all right yeah like when you um what, like you have to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like 25 years after your first number one album. Like there yeah. needs to be like a grace period. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to talk about the Oscars exactly, but, like, I do wonder how many people are going to see Mank, like, how much this movie is going to exist in a broader scale of things. Like, It seems like I, it's I mean, gone I, over, I, like, a lead balloon for the general public, so... I mean, uh, who possibly could have seen such a thing? I mean, I, mean, I if, can only go off uh, the interest on Polygon, where that sort of thing would pretty do well. And then, eh, yeah, no, I don't think there's a lot of mank excitement. It's no cyberpunk it's not in the top 10. It's not in the top I mean, 10 of Netflix.com. So that's not to do sign. my To do my Oscar thing for a second, like if it follows the path of Roma and the Irishman and gets some oscar nominations i mean roma won some oscars or irishman won zero but like if it's like netflix's third like giant passion project from beloved auteur that's a little isolating to the masses that doesn't really do that well at the oscars it will be uh, it'll be funny i have to admit well who do you yeah. think was better gary oldman as mank or glenn close as mom monk <laughs> or whatever her name is me monk me monk listen patches there are good terminator screen screenwriters there are bad terminator screenwriters and there are neutral and terminator there's neutral which are you gonna be you really you really almost forget about the neutral part of that quote and you're like ah, it's not such a bad no, thing the neutral the neutral part's like, the most that important is, that's the most important it's part what of makes quote. it it's what makes it from like dumb to historically dumb uh mank you can watch it right now at your house That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Mank Patches. Ah. Oh, boy. That's my Halloween. No, that's my Mank season name on Twitter. Uh, no Mank Polygon. November. No Mank May. <laughs> Mank Vember. Uh, 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 anyway, I, I work at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Mank to Patches. Uh, and, and you can find us on Fighting in the War Room. Dot com where you can listen to the episodes and share them with Mank. Uh, I listen to them; they're good. I am uh, David Ehrlich, and uh, film critic for IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. You can find me writing about uh, Wild Mountain Time uh, later this week on IndieWire. And those words may mean something more to you towards the end of this week. We'll see how the discourse around them goes, but it's a wild one. Uh, you can find all of us on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. Love to hear from you. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can listen to me uh, rewatch Lost at The Storm, a Lost rewatch podcast. We're in season four. We're going to finish out season four by end this year. Enter 2021 in season five. And uh, yeah, I will probably be tweeting things about Disney if you're listening to this after the 10th because we're going to know more Marvel stuff. I want to know What's your more prediction? What's my prediction? Casting announcements. I don't, I don't think Black Widow is going to go Disney Plus, but we'll see. Interesting. We'll see. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on the Little Gold Men podcast. Uh, we're talking about stuff this week. I don't think I have anything specific to... Oh, uh, Siri's talking on my watch while I'm doing this outro. Oh, That's Siri's a doing an outro, too. Yeah, thank you, Siri. Hey, Siri. Um, yeah, thanks, Siri. Okay, uh, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-E-C-H, and you can find all of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can mispronounce Mank, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Warner Brothers going to the max, what 2021 movie are you hoping does not go streaming? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. 
Bye.